Okay, so let's read from 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Israelites, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her uh, said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, 
the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Well, as we um, unpack this, uh, let's first of all um, pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for the, uh, the gripping uh, story that this is. And uh, we pray, Lord, that we would not just see the, the, the beauty of the, the style of writing, but, Father, that we would see the meaning uh, of this passage for us today and that we would embrace that meaning, that we would uh, turn our lives around based on that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage, as you might have um, noticed, uh, is all about the glory of God. Okay, the, the last verse talked about the glory departing. So this, this is a passage. It's all about the glory of God. Now, what do we mean when we use that word glory? It's a word that the Bible mentions a lot. Uh, it's a word that we sing about a lot, God's glory. Um, there's a song where the, the chorus goes, glory, 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 glory. Uh, glory be to um, God or something like that. Uh, so uh, we use the word a lot. But what does the word actually mean? Glory. Well, think about it like this. Imagine uh, going to a museum where there's a special exhibition displaying the jewellery that belonged to an ancient queen. And at the centrepiece of this exhibition is a necklace with diamonds that are so large and so rare that just one of those diamonds is worth more than the whole museum put together. And people travel from all over the world to see this necklace. And when people come up and, and finally get to this exhibition, and they come up to the, where the necklace is displayed <clears throat> behind bulletproof glass and all of that, no one just takes a casual glance and keeps walking. Everyone stops and they gaze and they are in awe of the beauty, the significance, the weight of this incredible necklace that is worth so much. In other words, what they're recognizing is the glory of the necklace, because that's what glory means. Glory means significance. Glory means value. It means worth. It means beauty. And in fact, the, the Hebrew word for glory, as we'll see, it comes up a lot in the next three chapters, it actually means weight or weightiness. Uh, there's a weightiness about the necklace because of its value. It's not something you treat lightly. You don't get it out and, you know, fling it around. Uh, it is weighty. It needs to be treated with certain respect. And so when we talk about God's glory, we're talking about the weightiness of God. We're talking about his significance, his beauty, his value. Uh, to put it another way, when we talk about the glory of God, we're saying God cannot be treated lightly because he is a weighty matter. We have to take him with all the seriousness that his glory requires. And so when we talk about glorifying God, we're saying we want to treat God with seriousness, uh, to treat him with the honour, which is another word for glory, the honour that is rightfully his. Now, as I said, this passage, it's all about God's glory. And it's about how we relate to God in all of his glory. And the, the passage, it centers on uh, the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized God's glory among Israel. 
And uh, there's two scenes to this passage. The first scene happens on the battlefield, and we can call that scene glory rejected. The second scene happens back at Shiloh, where everyone responds to the ark being captured, and we can call that scene glory departed. So glory rejected, glory departed, and uh, together that teaches us about how we are to relate uh, to the God of glory. So let's look at those two parts. Uh, first, glory rejected. In verse 1, it sets the scene. There's a battle. They're on the battlefield. They're facing their arch enemy at the time, the Philistines. Now, in the book of Judges, Samson confronted the Philistines. He took out a whole heap of them single-handedly. But since then, they've regrouped, and now they're wanting to re-exert their power over Israel. And uh, there's a battle. Uh, they draw up uh, for battle. Verse 3 says that the Philistines killed about three, no, 4,000 men on the battlefield. So Israel loses the first battle. At the end of the day, they all go home, and they, the, uh, the elders get together and they ask, Why? Why have we lost? But notice they don't ask, Why did our battle tactics fail? They don't ask, why were our men so hopeless fighting? They actually ask, if you look at verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And that's actually the right question to be asking. Because as they know, God is sovereign over everything. The battle is ultimately in his hands. And so if they lose, it's not because the Philistines were so tough it's not ultimately because the Israelites were so weak. Ultimately, it's because God decided the outcome. And so they're asking, well, why has the Lord let us be defeated? You can sort of get the sense in that question that there's, this, there's an assumption there. The assumption is that we were supposed to win because you know, we're the good guys. Philistines, they're the bad guys. God's always on the side of the good guys. And so what's going on? Why have we lost? And you can tell because they're thinking uh, even further, you know, they're in the promised land. This is our land. You know, God is obligated to make sure we fight, uh, win. Not only that, it says that they encamped at a place called Ebenezer, which means stone of help. And that, the idea there was, you know, they set up a stone to say that God is their helper in battle. And so, they, you know, they've got God on their side. And so they're confused. Why has God let us lost? What's up with God, they're wondering. And in some ways, they're asking the right question. But without any serious reflection, they quickly jump to the wrong conclusion, the wrong answer to their question. And they, their, their answer that they come up with is, we've got to get the ark. We've got to get the ark of the covenant. And uh, remember what the ark is all about. It stood for God's presence, stood for God's glory, that he is the king who is holy and who forgives sin. Uh, so that's what they're thinking. We've got to get the ark because if we get the ark, that's like bringing God to the fight. And if we bring God to the fight, then we can't lose. Uh, they're probably thinking about the, the battle of Jericho. Remember Jericho, that walled city couldn't get in. Too powerful. How did they defeat Jericho? They simply marched around it, following the ark of God. With the ark of God there, all that they had to do was shout, and the city crumbled before their very eyes. Okay, that's 
That's what they want. We need the ark. We've got to get God in on the fight. Because if God's with us, we can't lose. It's like having Michael Jordan in his prime, playing on your primary school basketball team. You can't lose. And so they race off to Shiloh, bring back the ark of God. And lo and behold, who should come along with the ark? Hophni and Phineas. Now, if you haven't been here over the last few weeks, that might not sound very significant. But if you have, you know, Hophni and Phineas were, as 1 Samuel says, worthless men. Sons of Belial is the literal wording there, uh, which means they were um, evil people uh, because they, they were all in, into corruption. They were stealing the sacrifices. They were sexually abusing the women. That was their leadership as priests in the holy place of God, mind you. And uh, poor old dad, uh, he couldn't bring himself to kick him out of the priesthood because he didn't want to bring shame on the family. And so absolute mess. These guys should not be in this position. And yet here they are coming along with the Ark of the Covenant of God. In fact, there's a very, bit of, a very skillful bit of writing going on here. Because if you notice in the passage, in the first five verses of this passage, every time the ark is mentioned, it always uses the full name for the ark. It always says the ark of the covenant of God. And it says it every time. And you start to think, why all this repetition? You know, uh, paper was expensive back then. You don't want to take up room with unnecessary repetition. But this is how Hebrew writing gets across a point by repeating something over and over again, and by constantly saying the Ark of the Covenant of God, the writer is creating some tension here, some tension. The tension is that when the Ark of the Covenant of God, when that is mentioned by the Israelites, what are they saying? They're implying that God has to get on their side. God has to fight for them because he made a covenant. He made a covenant. That means he's in a committed relationship. That means he has to fight for them. Okay, that's what they're implying. But when, when it says the Ark of the Covenant of God in connection with Hophni and Phinehas, a very different message comes across. Because the covenant relationship that they had, that not only put obligations on God to look after them, but it also put obligations on the people. And those obligations were set out very clearly in the covenant document, which was kept in the ark, the Ten Commandments. And here you have Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, the leaders of the people. And what had they done with the Ten Commandments? They had absolutely smashed them to bits. Not literally, they had broken the actual commands. They had not honoured God. They had not kept the terms of the covenant they had disregarded it completely. And the thing is, God had been very clear to the people what would happen if they broke the covenant. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, you've got um, there at the end in, in uh, verse uh, 28, uh, sorry, chapter 28, that God laid out, uh, first of all, the blessings for obeying the covenant. And then he laid out the curses for disobeying. And the curses, in the curses for disobeying the covenant, 
It says this in Deuteronomy 28, verse 25. He says that the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. If you're covenant breakers, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Not only had God told them that clearly, but throughout the period of the judges, which is just before 1 Samuel, time and time again that had happened. The people turned from the Lord. God allowed them to be defeated by their enemies so that they would turn back to him, which they did. They would cry out for mercy. God would send a judge. He would save them. And then, then things would be fine while the judge lived. And so anyway, in the past, whenever Israel was defeated before their enemies and they asked the why question, why is this happening? God's answer was always the same. It's because you've turned from me. And here is another defeat. This should have led to some very serious soul searching. They should be asking, what have we done wrong? In what way have we turned from the Lord? And, hey, this is handy. Hophni and Phinehas are here. They're priests. They should know the spiritual state of the nation. Why don't we ask Hophni and Phinehas, are there any glaring problems among the people of God at this point? Do you, do you know Hophni and Phinehas? Should be pretty obvious. Everyone knew about Hophni and Phinehas. It was the talk of the town. And yet here they are. They're defeated by their enemies. No one is calling out. No one makes a call for repentance. There's no admission of sin. There's no crying out for God's mercy. Instead, they just want God to keep his side of the covenant without any intention of keeping it on their behalf. Uh, they want the blessings of the covenant without the terms of the covenant. Or to put it another way, they want God's power but not his holiness. And that's why they treat God the way they do. How do they treat him? They try to manipulate him. Did you notice that? They want to bring the ark into the battle. What's that about? It's saying that if we bring this ark, God will have to make us win. Because if he doesn't, won't he look like a big loser to the Philistines. If we have the ark here and God doesn't give us the victory, he's going to look pathetic. He's going to look like a wimp. And so they're pretty sure God won't let that happen, which means they think they've got God in a bind. They've got God, they've twisted his arm. They've got him where they want him. God, you either give us the victory or you will be humiliated. It's kind of like, um, imagine a primary school student uh, coming up to their birthday and they say to mum, mum, I want a, a really big birthday party like my friend had the other week. You know, with, with all of the, the lollies and cakes and, and a clown and uh, streamers and all these things. And mum says, sorry, buddy, not this year. We can't afford it this year, I'm sorry. What does buddy do? Well, he knows better than mum, so he secretly writes out the invitations to every kid in the class, sends them out. In the next couple of weeks, mum starts getting texts with RSVPs to this party. And mum's thinking, uh-oh, what's going on? What does she do? Does she cave in 
and give little buddy the party after all, even though they can't afford it? Or does she go through the embarrassment of contacting all of the parents and saying, I'm sorry, there never actually was a party in the first place, and now all of a sudden everyone thinks she's a bad mum. <laughs> she's in a bind. What can she do? <laughs> and see, that's what Israel are trying to do to God. Get him in a bind, force him to act, force his hand. Because either God gives them the victory or he's going to look bad. Well, what does God do? He's not going to be manipulated like that. And uh, we see how that unfolds <clears throat> in uh, <clears throat> verses uh, 5 to 11, where, um, so, you know, Hophni and Phineas turn up with the ark. Everyone shouts. It's like a victory shout before it happens. They're so certain that they're going to win. They shout so loud that the earth resounds and the Philistine camp hears it and they're thinking, what's going on? They find out the ark has come into the camp. They all go into meltdown because they've heard about this God before, what he did to Egypt. And so they are absolutely petrified. They think they're going to lose. Israel think they can't lose. The Philistines pluck up some courage. They go into battle and what happens? It is an absolute disaster for Israel. It's far worse with the ark than it was without it. Because this time it's not 4,000 dead, but 30,000 men wiped off the face of the earth in one day. It is an absolute disaster. Not only that, but the ark is captured. What? <laughs> the ark? And not only that, but the last of all, it mentions that um, Hophni and uh, Phineas are dead. <clears throat> um, if you look there in verse 11, it's the last uh, thing that this section mentions. So Hophni and Phineas are dead. And, and here we now see, this is what I mean by God will not be manipulated. God will not be manipulated because even though it might look like he's defeated on the battlefield, he's actually carrying out the very word of judgment that he had spoken to Israel, right in their midst, because the sign of the judgment would be that Hophni and Phinehas would die on the same day. And here it is happening. Okay, it looks like a disaster. No, God's in complete control, doing exactly what he wants. But we see very clearly that God would actually rather suffer humiliation than to be manipulated by his people. He would rather look like he is defeated than to have his people treat him lightly than for his people to not respect his glory. And so this, this actually speaks very powerfully to us today because the same attitude that we see in the Israelites, that same attitude exists today. Uh, it is very easy for us to fall into this very same way of relating to God, of just treating him lightly treating him as if he'll come to our aid when we need him, but for the most part, so what? You know, we ignore him. We can go weeks on end, not even thinking about him, and then all of a sudden the need comes up, and what do we do? We rush to him and expect him to jump to our need. So you, what happens when we do that? What happens when prayer is something that we only ever get out when we need something? What is it saying to God? 
It's saying, I want your power, but I don't want you. And that's the problem. It's saying, I want you, God, on my terms, not on your terms. And uh, we can do that in some very strange ways. You know, like trying to drag an ark into a battle. Uh, we can have certain religious practices that we think that if we do these, that's enough to keep God off our back so that when we do need him, he'll come. But for the most part, we can just live however we like. <clears throat> We've got these practices that, you know, have the, the brownie points in the bank. You know, I recite the Lord's Prayer every day. I um, give tithes. I do these things. That's enough. God, when I need you, you need, to, you need to jump. That's the same thing the Israelites are doing. It's actually an attempt to control God, to manipulate him, to put him in your debt. And if anything, this story of the ark shows us you cannot do that. You cannot manipulate God. You cannot, cannot get him to bow to your will because he is the God of glory. His glory means that he can never be treated with such contempt so lightly. See, we need to recognize there's actually nothing that we can do to coerce God into doing our will. There's nothing we can do. You know, even our greatest acts of service to God, even those things are still tainted by sin. And so we can't earn brownie points with God. We can't get him in our debt so that he has to jump when we call out to him. If God is going to answer our prayers, you need to understand it's always an act of mercy. It's always a an act of his grace, giving us something that we do not deserve. And he is merciful. He is a God of grace. He will answer prayer. There's no doubt about that. But what we see in this passage is we cannot have God on our terms. We cannot have God lightly, as if he just exists to make our lives comfortable and easy. If we relate to God like that, we've lost sight of his glory, the weightiness of God. We haven't grasped that. And uh, when, <clears throat> if we're not treating him with the seriousness that his glory requires, then we're actually rejecting his glory, like the Israelites were. This is glory rejected. If we're going to take God seriously... It always starts with repentance. Okay, so that's the first point, glory rejected. Now, the second scene um, we're going to call glory departed, and that happens back at Shiloh. So everyone had run home after this um, battle, and uh, from verse 12 we see there's Eli, uh, who was sitting um, uh, on his seat by the road watching. It says that his heart trembled for the ark of God. You know, he's really worried about the ark. This is most likely another example of the failed leadership of Eli, where he knew that it was a bad idea to send the ark, but he did it anyway, because he wasn't good at saying no. And he's sitting there waiting. Uh, this fellow from the battlefield comes back running. He runs straight into the city. He spreads the news 
that everyone, you know, all these people have died. It's a disaster. The whole city uh, go into panic attack. Everyone's crying and, and worried. And Eli is hearing this noise going, thinking, what is going on? Eventually, the man finally comes over, tells him the news, tells him about all the carnage, tells him about Hophni and Phineas, the dead. And finally, he says to him, and Eli, you're not going to believe it, but we lost the ark. And verse 18, it says that as soon as Eli hears that the ark has captured, that he falls off his seat in shock. And his seat must have been on something elevated, perhaps, or a tall seat, because it says that he fell and he landed on his head and his neck broke and he died because he was old and heavy, 98 years old. And verse 18, it ends by saying that he had judged Israel for um, 40 years, 40 years of failure, this is 40 years of failed leadership. Because what does Eli have to show for his 40 years of judging Israel? He has on his hands a crushing defeat. He has the ark of the Lord taken. Can you imagine what that must have been like? To lose the ark. All that it stood for. How can you lose the ark? Not only did the loss of the ark um, kill Eli, but we also see that it killed his daughter-in-law, the wife of um, Phineas. And uh, this, this wife of Phineas, she was pregnant. And uh, when the news reached her, she went into labor and she died um, giving birth to uh, this um, little boy. And uh, with her dying breath, she was able to name the child. And she named the child Ichabod, which is a horrible name because it means where is the glory or glory gone. And she explained why she named him that. She said that she named it because the glory has departed from Israel. In verse 22, the last verse, we have the same quote, but it's, we're given the whole quote. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured and that's a very fitting ending to this story. The glory really has departed. What happened to the ark? That was really symbolic of the relationship between God and his people at this point. He has left, so to speak. His presence among them, it's not there now. <clears throat> because they <clears throat> have treated God like an idol. They've pushed him around. Treated him lightly, and he will not have that, and so he's out of there. And so Phineas's wife was right. The glory has departed from Israel. But Phineas's wife was also wrong, because she said the glory has departed, for the ark was captured. Do you see how she's thinking like all of the Israelites at the time, thinking that God's presence was just tied to this box? She's actually got it around the, the wrong way. The glory of God hasn't departed Israel because the ark has been captured. No, no, the ark has been captured because the glory had departed from Israel, because God had left them. That's why the ark was captured. And you've got to remember that the ark, what it stood for was God's presence with them. And it wasn't just about 
no spatial presence. It was the presence of his favour. It was to have God in their midst as one who was with them, who loved them, who was in fellowship with them. You know, with language like his face shining upon them. That's what it meant to have God's presence with them. But see, that was lost because the people had rejected him, turned their back on him. They didn't recognise or respect his glory. And so his glory had departed long before the symbol of that glory had been captured. So what is this actually saying to us today, though? Is it possible that glory can depart us? Well, before we answer that question, we need to realise how it is we can, we can have God's glory among us today. Because for us today, we don't have an ark. We don't have you know, this golden box that had the glory of God uh, dwelling above uh, in a tabernacle. Uh, in fact, for us, what the ark stood for, remember, children, that God is the king, that he is holy, that he forgives sin. Do you know what all of that was pointing to? To Jesus. That's what the ark was all about. It was, all, it was a pointer. It was a sign saying we need the true king who is holy, who forgives sin, to come to see his glory. That's Jesus. And that's why uh, John, this is why I read that passage at the start in John um, 1 verse 14, that, that where John says, The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus, he is the glory of God, come in the flesh. Okay, Jesus, he prayed a prayer which is recorded in John 17, where he asked the Father that one day all of his people would see his glory, the glory that he had from the, for, forever, you know, as the Son of God. One day we will see the glory of Christ. And it'll be like, it'll be better than looking at that necklace. <laughs> we will gaze in awe at the glory of Jesus. But until then, how do we experience his glory? And it's interesting that in the New Testament, we're told that the glory of Jesus actually rests on every single one of his believers because the New Testament talks about Christ being in us. Now, Colossians says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, other places talk about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So there's a sense in which the glory of God is with every one of Christ's people. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 actually says that when Christ's people get together and, and form local churches, that there's a sense in which the glory dwells there because together we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so what we're seeing from a New Testament perspective Every local church where Christ is honoured, where his word is preached faithfully, where his people are on about his mission and are on about displaying his love as his disciples in serving one another and serving others, that's the glory of God on display. God's glory is seen in the changed lives of his people, in the people who have been changed by the gospel. 
And yet we see something else in the New Testament which came out from that reading in Revelation. That it is possible for God's glory to depart the local church. Because in Revelation 2, you've got Jesus, he comes to the church in Ephesus, and the church in Ephesus had, well, they had turned their back on him. He describes it as saying they've lost their first love. And they need to repent. And Jesus says, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand, which is almost like saying the glory will depart. You'll be named Ichabod. And sadly, there are local churches throughout the history of the world where that has come about, where they have been labelled by God Ichabod because the glory has departed. They've given up on the gospel, embraced false teaching, live worldly lives, allowed immorality to go unchecked. And what is God's response? Ichabod, the glory departed. Do you know, there's even a sense in which that can happen in us as individuals. Okay, if there's ungodliness in our lives and we have no intention of turning from that, what's the, what should we be called? Ichabod. Glory departed. Now, the big question is, what do you do when that's the case? Okay, what, if, what if you're here today and you feel like the glory has departed in your life? What do you do? Well, there's only one answer. It's the answer that Jesus gave us. Repent. Repent. That means turn away from your sin and turn back to him. Turn to him. Embrace him as all that he is, that he is the king who is holy, who forgives sin. Okay, turn back to him. Uh, do you know Isaiah has this, this invitation that goes like this? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. That's the invitation. Okay, if you feel like the glory has departed in your life, there's your answer. Seek the Lord. Turn from your sin. Turn to him. <clears throat> and why is it that we can do that? Why is it that, that that is the answer? It's because of Jesus. Because he is the king of glory who came down and went to the cross and he displayed the glory in the most amazing way by offering up his life for us to pay for all of our sin so that people who should be called Ichabod for all of eternity can have a saviour called Emmanuel. God with us. So turn to him because he will forgive you, he will restore you, and he will empower you. Okay, You can have God's power in your life, but what's that power for? Why does he empower you? So that you can live for his glory. His glory. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reminder of how weighty you are, that you are no light matter, that you're not someone that we can ignore or push around or treat as if, if we know better. 
And Father, forgive us for doing that because we, we acknowledge that we so easily fall into that. We can go a whole week without even thinking about you. And Father, as we see that attitude on display in the Israelites, uh, we, we are convicted because we see that we're just like them. But we know that your love and your mercy is, is greater than our sin and that you invite us to turn back to you. So Lord, we, we pray that all of us would do that, that we wouldn't run from you or hide from you or think that we don't need you, but Lord, that we would run back to you. And we thank you that because we have a glorious saviour that there is forgiveness uh, freely offered at the cost of his blood. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.